Hello and welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. Today, Jen Lewis walks us through the birth of Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 25. As you listen, consider this question. How would your choices be impacted if you lived with eternity in mind? Here's Jen. Well, today is a big day because we are having a big shift in our story, the story that we've been covering over the last several weeks. Abraham is about to die. And so we are going to say goodbye to Abraham today, and we are going to watch the promises of God transfer from Abraham to his son, and then we're going to start to see the beginning of that transfer to his grandson. If you've not been with us uh, for the past several weeks, we have been covering the book of Genesis, and most recently, we've been looking at the account of Abraham. He was the father of the Jewish nation and is often referred to as the father of faith. He wasn't perfect, um, but he was a man of faith. God chose him specifically, and, and really out of a, you know just a whole bunch of pagan people, he decided to choose Abraham, and he promised to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. After years of infertility and then an attempt to solve the problem through a slave girl, Abraham and his wife Sarah ended up having a child. And a couple weeks ago, we, we um, heard about his wife, Sarah, passing away. Well, now we're going to see the passing of Abraham. So we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. It says, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, for some of you, you're like, wait, what? He has another wife? What? This is Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. I know, but it's not a Hallmark movie. It's real life. And so he didn't spend the rest of his time pining away for Sarah. He actually married again. And not only did he marry again, he fathered six more sons, which is shocking when we remember the storyline that took place before. It really is a surprising turn of events, but he did. He married again and he had six more sons. So Isaac, the son that ultimately will carry on the promise of God, was actually one of eight sons. But still, he is the heir. It goes on in verse 5 and says, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Okay, then you're like, wait a minute, we got Keturah and now we have concubines? What is going on? Well, okay, I did some research when I read the term concubine. I was like, oh my gosh, really? Like what? But this, this term concubine most likely is referring to Hagar, the slave woman, and then also to Keturah, the second wife, kind of to clarify that Sarah was the primary wife. So I know it's not a Hallmark movie, but it's not quite as bad as it could be. Or maybe it was, and we don't really know for sure. But at this point, we know there were eight sons. So anyway... Abraham, while living, made sure that each of his sons, including Ishmael, received some of his inheritance. Now, I think that's fascinating. We still have Ishmael included in this situation. You know, we saw him kind of be, be pushed out, basically, with his mother into the desert. Somehow, in this time period in between all that, they've reconnected, and he made sure that Ishmael had some provisions, which... That made me feel really good. I was glad to, to see that. But the bulk of the inheritance was saved for Isaac. Again, also, we see that Abraham sent all of his other sons away, um, which 
which really what they what the the commentators and the theologians think when they say this is that he did this so as to keep Isaac away from the threat of what those other descendants and the sons of the sons of the sons might threaten from Isaac's sons. But he did this. Abraham did this before he died so that he knew it actually happened, so that he knew that Isaac and his inheritance would be secure. So it goes on in in, uh, verse 7. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. You know, I don't know if you've been to several funerals working for a church. I've been to a lot of funerals, and there is a real difference between a funeral where someone dies old and lived a good life and then someone who dies young with, you know, maybe tragedy or regrets. The first funeral is much easier to go to than the second kind. And Abraham's was the first kind. Abraham had died having lived a blessed, long, good life. And the phrase that says he was gathered to his people really kind of communicates this thought of the afterlife. Early on in scripture, we see this. Um, Really, it kind of communicates the idea that he joined those who had faith before him um, in in the afterlife. Verse nine says, his son, Isaac, his sons, Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite. Yes, I did okay. The field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. Again, interesting. Ishmael came back to bury his father. I think that's fascinating. I think, you know, what's really happening with these relationships? I'd love to write a historical novel where we could just make up stuff and and, and, and see what what had happened. But we don't really know how the relationship was between Isaac and Ishmael. We don't even really know how the relationship was between Ishmael and Abraham before he passed. I mean, did he know he was ailing? Had he been in relationship with him, been communicating with him? Or was it one of those things where somebody rode up to him, you know, on a camel and said, you got to come home. Abraham has passed and, and he comes home and it's tense and it's awkward. I don't know. I don't know how it worked, but what I can say is it does say something about Ishmael that he came back, that he was willing to come back and bury his his father. So no matter what the funeral looked like, whether it was tense and awkward or it was a family reunion and was good, the torch passes and it passes on to Isaac. It says in verse 11, after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. God's blessing Um, on this family continues, and it continues through Isaac. So the book's closed on Abraham. Abraham's done. People will mention him later on in scripture just to point back to who he was and, and you know, kind of the foundational figure that he was to our faith. But now we're moving on to the sons, and we quickly kind of move on and cover Ishmael real quick, and then it quickly moves on to Isaac. But before we move on, I want to see a little bit about what happens with Ishmael. We don't learn a whole lot more, but what we do know is that this chapter lists 12 sons and their names are tricky to pronounce. You can have fun with them later. I'm going to skip that part. And then I'm just going to read what it says when it closes out the account of Ishmael. It says, these were the sons of Ishmael. And these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died and he was gathered to his people. Now, again, some people point to that gathered to his people in reference to him maybe still being a man of faith at this point. Um, 
And if you remember, God had promised to Hagar that Ishmael was going to have many sons and that he was going to father nations as well. And we see this scripture fulfilled. He had 12 sons and those 12 sons continued on and prospered well. It goes on and it says, his descendants settled in the area from Havilah to shore near the eastern border of Egypt. As you go toward toward Asher, and they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. Now, this is where it doesn't sound real great. It's kind of a sad statement right there. But this was also something that God told Hagar would happen. They didn't get along with each other, and they didn't get along with Isaac and his descendants. It's, it's often believed that the descendants of Ishmael became the Arab people. And even today, the Arab people and the Jewish people have strife. They don't get along. So now we're going to turn to, the, to, to Isaac. And what's interesting is Isaac, you know, there's not a ton about him. We know that he's Abraham's son. We know that the promise goes through him. We know that he was the son that Abraham took up on the mountain to, to offer as a sacrifice if he had to. We know that he marries Rebecca. We saw that love story last week, which is such a cool little, you know, hallmark moment within the Bible. Um, and we know that he's Jacob's father. But other than that, we don't know a whole lot about Isaac. So we're going to see a little bit right now, a little bit next week, and that's really going to be the end of Isaac. We go quickly to, his grand, to Abraham's grandsons, who would be Isaac's boys. It says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan, Aram and sister of Laban the Aramean. I, I hope you are impressed with how I am just, those are just coming off the tongue with such authority. Last week we covered the, you know, the love story between Rebecca and, and Isaac. And, and I do think, and maybe it's just the romantic in me, but it does seem like they really did care for each other. Um, later we're going to see that there was a romantic moment that's coming up, so keep reading between the two of them. This was a time when polygamy was common, but Rebecca appears to be the only wife of Isaac. So it is kind of this, this love story stuck in here. But it goes on, and, and here's, the, here's the funny thing about everything we read in Genesis. There's always these good things, and then you see, oh yeah, but they weren't perfect. And that's what we're going to see right here. Isaac, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. Now, again and again in Scripture, we see that these special children come from women who deal with infertility. And this situation is no different. We see that for 20 years, they waited for a child. Now, you wouldn't know this yet, but we will know this in a minute, that Isaac was 60 by the time the kids were born. But keep in mind, Isaac knew the story of his birth. He knew that his parents waited decades for him to be born. And fortunately, he at least learned one lesson from them. And that was not to take you know, matters into their own hands and, and not for him to go and get a slave woman. And what does he do? He prays. Lovely. Good job, Isaac. He prays. And you know what? God answers. Not only does he answer with one son, but he answers with two. It says, the babies jostled each within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. 
Now, having been pregnant with twins, I can assure you that the jostling can be intense. You know, one may be asleep, but the other one's awake and moving around. Or when they're both awake, it's crazy. It really looks like aliens are going to come out of you. Like your be- you can see your belly move. So I don't know if, if Rebecca um, was just surprised at all the jostling or, or um, you know, I mean, she wouldn't have known it was twins other than by the fact that God told her because they didn't have ultrasounds back then. But the jostling was significant. I mean, I remember one time when I was pregnant with the twins, I had my oldest sitting on my lap and was reading to her. And one of the twins kicked her through my belly. You know, just too much pressure there. Move out of the way. So it, it, it can be intense. But we don't know. Was it more just because it was twins or was it more because it was what? we end up finding out two brothers who will end up struggling with each other and having sibling rivalry basically from the get-go. But either way, she goes and, and, and she goes to the Lord. She seeks the Lord and he reveals to her that it's going to be a unique situation. These babies are going to have conflict. And in fact, the older will serve the younger. Now, this would have been extremely unusual at the time because tradition at the time would have always said that the older would be the leader, that that the younger would be subservient to the older. But as we've seen all along through Genesis, God gets to choose what he wants to choose, and he has a plan, and it doesn't matter what the birth order is in this situation. That's not going to confine God to a particular plan or choice. So finally, the birth comes. When the time came to her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out and his hand, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So for 20 long years, they waited, but they got these beautiful boys. But apparently the sibling rivalry was just, I mean, from before birth, it was happening. In verse 27, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So here's where this wonderful romantic love story of Isaac and Rebekah becomes interesting because they weren't perfect parents. They had favorites. And Isaac loved Esau. Apparently Esau had this gift of going and getting really tasty meat. I mean, I picture him as kind of being a manly man, you know, the man's man. And um, Isaac really liked the things that he brought home from hunting. He really kind of connected with Esau. But Rebecca seemed to connect with Jacob. He was the one who was probably quieter, more sensitive, helped her make baskets or do whatever it was around the tents that needed to be done. I also think it probably had something to do with the fact that God had told Rebecca, hey, the younger is going to be, you know, the leader of the, of the older. She had that going in the back of her mind, I'm sure, that whole time. And that may have influenced her as well. So you've got that sibling rivalry that was there from the get-go, and then you have this parental favoritism, which I'm sure did not help matters at all. And then we see how things start to get dicey between the brothers. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom, because Edom means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. 
So he swore on an oath, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. I mean, can you just picture it? Like I just picture two smelly teenage boys in the kitchen. The one comes in and he's, you know, whatever you do in the open country, but he was tired, exhausted, and hungry from being out in the open country. And he, you know, he wants some food. And then there's no like kind pleasantries to the brother. It's like, give me some stew. I can picture it. I mean, I don't have a teenage boy yet, but I have a 12-year-old boy. And I'm just catching a glimpse of the bottomless hole that is his stomach. And so these guys are, you know, they're dealing with food. They want the food. Esau is hungry, and that's all he can seemingly think about. He ignores all logic in order to get food in his belly. Now, when I was researching this particular part, I I saw this comment online that I thought was so funny because this one guy was commenting on, on what the teaching was that I was looking at. And he said, the bottom line of the story is Esau was an idiot and Jacob was a jerk. I thought, oh. It's pretty good, pretty basic right there. But really, when you think about it, this really, it was a crappy situation. And I tried to think of another word other than crappy that would sound more theological or more intelligent, but crappy's a good description for this situation. Jacob was a jerk. Like, why didn't he just give him food? Come on. But then at the same time, what's Esau doing? I mean, Esau could have just said, shut up, give me food, and they would have moved on. But he engages him in this process and and thinks so little of his heritage and his birthright and the blessing that God would have had for him for a momentary, you know, lentil of all things, stew. Both brothers were wrong. It was a bad situation. Jacob should have been willing to meet his brother's need. And Esau's priorities were obviously out of whack and short-sighted. And you got to think about it for this particular family, too. This was not just any old birthright. Let me explain to you first what a birthright would be. Traditionally, with a birthright, the person who was born first would receive twice twice the inheritance that everybody else would get. Okay, so already it's like big deal financially. But they also were given a greater spiritual blessing from their father. And that meant a great deal. So Esau is 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 like totally disregarding that. It, I read one pastor who said it, it it would be like comparing it to to Bill Gates coming to you and asking for some M&Ms and you say, "Well, okay, make me majority stockholder in Microsoft and I'll give you some M&Ms." And then and he's fine with it. You know, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but it's even more than that because it's more than just this financial thing. In this family in particular, the birthright would have included the blessing and the promise that Abraham had been given from God. Esau and Jacob would have known that story. They would have known it because they ultimately passed it down for it to be written and for us to read about today. So by trading this birthright, Esau showed complete disregard for the spiritual blessing of his family. This unique blessing to this particular family in this particular line from God Almighty. This was not just some piddly little thing. And, and, you know, we look at this and we do say, okay, Esau, you are an idiot. Like, this is dumb. But before we get too judgy, let's take a step back here for a minute. How often have we done the same thing? How often is it that in a moment of temptation, 
We disregard all of, of what eternity waits for us. And we do the very thing we know we're not supposed to do. We do the very thing that can compromise what we, we get and what we have in eternity. We trade the goodness of God for momentary satisfaction. Such insanity is sin. In the moment we think, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it. We'll trade whatever it is for whatever we want. But in reality, we're left with lentil stew or M&Ms. So that's the chapter, Genesis 25. What can we take away from all that information? Here's what I think first we can grab. Number one, families are messy and they require the grace of God. Now, this may seem obvious to all of us, but I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of this. All families are messy. Your family is messy, and that doesn't shock me. My family is messy, and it shouldn't shock you. But sometimes we function in our own world, and we're surprised by the sin and the dysfunction that surrounds us in our own homes. We are all broken, and what ends up happening is we live together in our brokenness, and we end up hurting each other and, and, and causing um, irritation and strife and friction in our relationships. We see this in the storylines in this chapter. We see it from, from Abraham all the way down. And what's so interesting is even the children of the chosen father of the faith, even their children were hostile to each other, didn't get along. There was still dysfunction there. And then we see it with Isaac and Rebecca. Oh, what a sweet story. It's fantastic. But they were totally not good parents. And then we see it in the relationship with Jacob and Esau. They were mean to each other. It was just bad. Cheating, cheating one brother out of, out of what should have rightfully, what he would have thought of, would have been his. And the truth is, we all do this to some extent in our families. I mean, these are extreme cases for sure. But we disagree about things. We take advantage of each other. We're inconsiderate. We're selfish. And sometimes we even intentionally hurt our loved ones. I remember I had a friend one time who was an only child, and she had an only child. And she was working with some kids, and, and there were siblings in the room, and they were being so mean to each other. And she came up to me later, and she was like, oh, my gosh, this one said this to this one, and I couldn't believe it. They're brothers. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That totally happens. Completely normal. Oh, every family is a mess. Now, I don't say this to give us an excuse that, oh, okay, everybody's dysfunctional and, and not attempt to do better. But I say it to take the pressure off a little bit. If our home life isn't perfect, God's not shocked. If there are disagreements among siblings or spouses or in-laws or parents and children, we're normal. It's normal. If there's no dysfunction in your family, honestly, I wonder about you because maybe everyone in the family is just walking on eggshells around you because it's just not reality. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that family strife is inevitable in this life. As long as we're broken and as long as there's sin, we're going to have trouble in our families. And I think if we realize that and we remember that, we will deal with it gracefully when it happens. Unrealistic expectations in relationships can often make matters worse. 
If, if you expect your spouse to be perfect or your kids to be perfect, you are dooming them to failure and you honestly are leading yourself into disappointment. It isn't fair for them and it isn't healthy for any of you. Here's the truth of it. God still chose Abraham in his dysfunction and he still continued the blessing down the line despite the dysfunction of the rest of the family. God chose to use this crazy family to bring his blessing into the world. So take heart. If your family is messy, God can still use it. Your dysfunction does not disqualify you. It just makes you eligible for his grace. Now, again, that doesn't mean you just succumb to the dysfunction and give up on trying to make things better. Scripture speaks strongly to us about the importance, specifically as Christians, that we are to forgive, that we are to be kind, that we are to be unselfish, that we are to be servant-minded. And as we do that, all of that behavior will help us and help our families to function well. As followers of Christ, we are to live what Romans 12 says. It says in verse 18, if it is if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, we do get a glimpse of this, even in the imperfections of Abraham's family. We get glimpses of it. We see Ishmael coming to Abraham's funeral, even though it might have been difficult and it might have been, been hard. Um, if nothing else, Ishmael did the right thing by returning and paying his respects to Abraham. Also, we see that Abraham tried to make sure that even if Isaac was going to get the, the birthright and the blessing, he made sure that his other sons were okay, that they received enough to get started and to get moving and to be well taken care of. And spoiler alert, we're going to find out that Jacob and Esau have some more interesting arguments, but in the end, they're not hostile toward each other. All of these relationships required effort, required forgiveness, required extending grace. If your family has issues, and I know it does because all of ours do, make the effort where you can. Forgive where you can. Act unselfishly when you can. Now, for some of us, the dysfunction in our family is so bad that we may have to remove ourselves for a time or, or, um, or a season or for, uh, forever from certain people or situations. You know, having healthy boundaries is important. Abraham made his other sons move away. He did require there to be a healthy boundary. And so sometimes that will need to happen. But that doesn't mean that even if there's separation, you can't continue to extend grace and mercy. Having a healthy boundary doesn't mean you still are allowed to hold a grudge. It's not good for you. It's not good for your family. It's not good for the rest of the family that's watching the scenario happen. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with your messy family. Second takeaway that I would say is God is sovereign, but our prayers do matter. God is sovereign, but our prayers do matter. Just, just like God chose Isaac to fulfill the promise over Ishmael, he chose Jacob over Esau. And this reveals that God really does have this free and sovereign choice. In simple terms, God does what he wants to do. And, and um, Chris Dew talked about this last week extensively, and it's, it's really, I think, one of the things that gets hammered home over and over again. Worldly traditions don't control what happens in life. Random chance, like who was born first or second, doesn't direct how things are going to go in life. God is the one who's in control. He is the one who is sovereign. 
You know, you think about Jacob and you think he was such a schemer, but ultimately it was God's will that he would get the birthright. It wasn't because Jacob was clever and cunning. It was because God had already ordained it. What he wills and what he promises will come to pass. But we see something in this scripture that I don't want us to miss. Remember, God had promised Abraham that the line would continue through Isaac. He was very clear with this. And, 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 and so that would require that Isaac have offspring. But for 20 years, they waited for a child. You know, have you ever waited 20 years for something? 20 years? Some of you have barely lived that long. Some of you, though, are actually nodding your heads and thinking, yes, I have. I've waited twice as long for answers to certain prayers or certain things to change. I know for me, I've been praying specific prayers for specific people for over 32 years now. And I haven't necessarily seen the answers that I want. I hope what I'm seeing is not the final answer on those prayers. It's hard to wait though, isn't it? But these stories tell us not to give up, that God is still at work, that he's still in control, but not only that he's still in control, but that he hears us and he hears our prayers. I have very dear friends right now who are going through an extremely difficult time. I mean, if I went through the whole details and, and the story of what is happening in their lives, you guys would all be nodding your heads and like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. And it is horrible. And what has happened in, in the dynamics of the family is that the wife in this situation um, is praying and praying and praying, and she's just holding on for dear life. There's moments where she's discouraged, but she continues to pray. And the husband has just stopped praying. And he said, you know, I mean, if, this, if God's sovereign and this is how it is, then this is what it is. It's not going to matter if I pray. And I think if we're honest, we've all been there or at least thought that or have pondered it. Or if you haven't yet, you will. Because there, there is kind of this, this moment in life where you're like, well, I mean, if he's in control and this is what's happening, what does it matter? Why pray? Like, really, why pray? And, and, you know, some things won't be clearly explained until we're in heaven, but there is this weird invitation that is weaved throughout Scripture over and over and over again, and it is that we pray. God wants us to pray. He invites us, commands us, tells us to pray. And what we see in this story is in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. There is a correlation made in this story between Isaac praying and Rebecca getting pregnant. Now, we don't know if Isaac was praying all of those 20 years or if finally in the end he was like, oh my goodness, and he finally prayed and it kind of broke the straw and the camel's back or what. I don't know. But for some reason, even though God is sovereign and he is in control, he invites us over and over and over again to talk to him, to ask him, to sometimes even plead with him about his plan and about his sovereignty. And scripture shows he responds to it. Maybe not in the time we want, but he does. You know, he tells us in the New Testament, pray without ceasing, to knock until the door is open, and that we often do not have because we do not ask. God tells us to pray and he responds. You know, waiting is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a hard thing, 
but it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think oftentimes we interpret waiting wrongly. Waiting doesn't mean he isn't listening. Waiting doesn't mean he thinks you don't deserve an answer. Waiting doesn't mean he's punishing you. God has all kinds of reasons for his timing. Reasons that we won't necessarily know until we get to heaven. But he wants to grant our requests and he wants us to talk to him about what we want and what we long for. Maybe he wants to deepen our understanding of what we really do want. Maybe he wants us to appreciate even more what ultimately he's going to give. Maybe he wants us to mature more so that what he gives we can handle in the best way possible. Or maybe he wants to deepen our relationship with him because as we pray to him, we seek him, we lean in our relationship with him, we rely on him more. But here's what I know. We just got to keep praying. Whatever that thing is or those many prayers are that you keep praying and you keep wondering about, keep praying. God's sovereignty is not to be an excuse for us to stop praying because the same book that talks about God's sovereignty is the same book that tells us we must pray. You know, the beauty of my friend's situation is that she's praying and she's helping. She's a helpmate to her husband right now. He doesn't have it in him right now. And there are times when we're going to have a hard time praying ourselves. That's when you need a life group. Or that's when you need to go up to these, you know, uh, prayer spots that we have at the Capitol to get prayer from others. That's why we have the body of Christ. Because there are moments in time where you need somebody else to pray for you because you just don't have it in you. And I suspect that someday this husband will do the same thing for his wife, that she will go through a season the same way. God is sovereign, yes, but in a mysterious and real way, he invites us to speak to him about that sovereignty. And then number three, don't give up your eternal inheritance for momentary satisfaction. You know, we are presented with choices every single day. Are we going to decide to go God's way or are we going to go our own way? Or are we going to go the world's way, which is somewhere in the mix of all that? You know, we can't kid ourselves. Whenever we say no to God's way and yes to our way, we are like Esau and we are choosing the lesser thing. Even if choosing God's way is harder or uncomfortable, you know, Chris talked about this last week, we will still be choosing the lesser thing if we choose our way over God's way. Esau traded the lasting benefits of his birthright for the immediate pleasure of food. He acted on impulse, satisfying his immediate desires without considering the long-term consequences. And we can fall into the same trap. When we want something, our first impulse is to just go get it. And there may be satisfaction for a little while, but that satisfaction only lasts so long. And if it doesn't line up with God's will, not only will the satisfaction wane, but then there might be all these other consequences that go along with it. Esau's story shows us our human tendency to place physical desires over spiritual blessings. One commentary said it like this, and this is a tough word right here. We are all cursed with the madness of Esau. We inherit it from Adam and Eve, who chose one bite of fruit over eternal joy with God. We are all afflicted with congenital, culpable irrationality. We're crazy. 
were just like Esau. We would trade the here and now for eternity at times. It's a pretty harsh assessment, but it's true. I think sometimes I think if we fully could fathom the eternal rewards waiting for us in heaven, maybe we would make better choices. But Esau was fully aware of what he was giving up, and he did it anyway. You know, the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 brings up Esau. And what chapter 12 does is it contrasts Esau to Jesus. And I think it's helpful for us to read what it says. In Hebrews 12, 16, it says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. But then earlier in Hebrews 12, they talk about Jesus. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Esau lived for the moment, and it cost him everything. Jesus lived for eternity, and it bought us our redemption. Jesus was willing to suffer in the present to gain an eternal prize, that prize being us, which is amazing in and of itself. But Esau did the exact opposite. He traded the better to shorten his immediate suffering in the moment. We are to to live like Jesus. We are called to be like Jesus, to live with eternity in mind, to endure the hardships of life here for the sake of eternity that's coming. I don't want lentil soup or M&Ms if it means I don't get an eternal banquet in heaven. Some of us are living like Esau, honestly, every single day of our lives. You know, maybe we come to church occasionally or we're catching it online right now by chance. But honestly, the momentary pleasures of life always win out. And we can't fool ourselves in thinking that that doesn't have a consequence and it doesn't have an impact. Your heart will be hardened over time and it will have an impact. When we continue to say no to God over and over again, it really kind of shows where your allegiance lies. I mean, really, if this is what your life looks like, I'm going to challenge you to say, who are you really committed to? Don't settle for lentil stew when eternity and all of its rewards are waiting for you. You know, God loves you. Your story's not over. Jesus died for all those bad choices that you've made. But you don't don't have to continue that way. Jesus offers you eternity, but you have to respond to that. And you have to be in it to win it. There's going to be hard choices that come your way. And when those come, I want to encourage you, ask God to help. Ask him to help and then cooperate with him. Do the hard next thing. Go get prayer. Get in a group where people can walk alongside of you and and help you to make better choices. Remove yourself from tempting situations or unhealthy relationships that bring you down or influence you to compromise. But most importantly, make a commitment to surrender your will to God's spirit. Because honestly, none of us can make good choices on a regular basis over and over again against the repeated temptations that come without the help of the Holy Spirit. And that is this wonderful thing and dynamic about our faith is that when we surrender our lives to Christ, when we say, okay, I'm in, you are the leader of my life. When we do that, 
The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And that Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift, as a counselor, as God walking alongside of us, helping us to engage all the different choices we have in this life. And as we lean into the Holy Spirit, as we listen to him, and as we continue to surrender our will to God's and, and not to our own, these choices will get easier to make. This chapter that contrasts Esau and Jesus in, in Hebrews 12, it starts with a verse that I'm going to end with here. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You see, when Jesus died and rose again, he made a way for us to have a new heart so that our heart would no longer be innately like Esau's, but it would be more like Jesus's. But we are made new by the power of his spirit. And so when we accept that gift, we also accept the Holy Spirit to come and to work and to move in our lives. And what the scripture says is that Jesus will be the perfecter of our faith. He will help us to be more and more like him as we run this race, as we make choices. It still requires effort on our part. It still requires us to remove ourselves from temptation, to remind ourselves that we don't want to be like Esau, but we want to be like Jesus. And let me end by saying this. If you have never ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, to be the leader, to really, what I mean by that is to submit yourself under his leadership. I want to encourage you to do that now. You have before you the choice of eternity or something as, as passing and as quick, quickly thrown away as lentil soup. Jesus offers you eternity. And you accept that gift for eternity by accepting his gift of dying and rising again on the cross, of taking punishment for what you deserve onto himself. And you do that by saying, I'm in. And then every morning waking up and reminding yourself, I'm in. Jesus is my Lord. So I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to ask you that if you want to, to commit to God that way, or maybe even recommit to God to, that, to that, in that way today, to bow your heads and pray with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love me. And Lord, I pray that you would come and be the leader of my life. I submit my will to your will. Please forgive me of all the choices I've made that have looked like Esau's choice. Help me to live for you. Fill me with your spirit and help me to lead a life that makes you smile. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. 
You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.